Let's keep going. Acts chapter 15. I hope you're there. I'm turning there now. We've been in this, uh, this shortened, concentrated sermon series going through the book of Acts. What we're doing is, as I remind us every week, we are jumping at those high points, the, the, the parts of the, uh, uh, the history that um, Luke, telling the story of the apostles' ministry, the, the thing that he really uses to, to turn the story as it comes about at these uh, climactic points is sermons and speeches. He uses those things to really shape the storyline of the book of Acts. And so we're going to find today not so much a sermon, but I couldn't pass over it because it is a speech. It is a three-part speech, but it is so essential to the storyline of the book of Acts. And in fact, it is essential to the mission to the Gentiles, which would eventually become why you and I, non-Jews, have a church, have faith in Jesus Christ. The future of the Gentile church and the Great Commission rest on what happens today in this public debate and council that happens in Jerusalem between the elders and the prophets and the uh, apostles. So you can look at verse 1 of chapter 15 there, and this really sets us up for what has happened. Remember, Paul has just gone through uh, 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 Asia Minor, what is really common day uh, Turkey. They, they went through there and they preached in the synagogues and they preached to people. They saw many saved, all of these Gentiles flocking in to hear the word of God. And they, 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 they had all of this opposition from the local Jews who were jealous. And, and Paul and Barnabas had this amazing ministry and then returned back to their sending church, the church of, uh, of Antioch in Syria, which is just on the map north of Israel. They return there and tell of all of these amazing things that have been going on about how God had saved many of the Gentiles. We'll look at verse 1 of 15. But some men came down from Judea. It's up on the map, but it's down from the mountains. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This sets up what will become this fierce and loud and public and brotherly debate in the chapter of 15 of Acts. What's going to happen in Jerusalem is is centering around that. We can also read verse 5 to see a fuller view that these men are putting forwards. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, to circumcise them uh, in order to, for them to... Uh, <clears throat> it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This is, this is their position, that it's great that the Gentiles have sort of trickled into this Jewish salvation. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. We're, we're so glad you've come and tasted of the grace of God. There's one thing you've forgotten, though, that because you were born as a Gentile, outside of the covenant of God, an alien to the God of Israel, and remember, Yahweh is the God of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and they are the fathers of the Jewish nation. So we're so glad that you're coming and knocking on our door to receive salvation from our God, but there is a doorway you need to go through. In fact, in many uh, 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 ancient houses, they would sort of have a, a doorway outside the doorway, like a little sitting room that you could come in out from the rain or out from the elements, but there is, you're still not in the house. You actually have to prepare yourself to go through the real door. That's the image of what they're doing to these Gentiles. We're, we're so glad you've arrived, and yes, you're inside, but this next door that you need to go through is circumcision, which was given to Abraham as a sign of, his, of God's promises, and keeping the law of Moses. Yes, the Ten Commandments, and the ceremonial and civil laws that really make us Jewish. You have to take those on in order to be saved. I think that these men all joking aside, must have been very, very dangerously cunning, kind, nice, convincing teachers. There is no way that you take something, so, so take a people that are so enraptured in the joy and freedom of Christ who didn't have to go through any genital surgery and you convince them in large masses to take on this set of belief. That, that's a hard sell. That is a very hard sell to convince people that they need to do that, but they were having widespread success. 
These men would have been kind. They would have bought you the coffee. They would have sat down. They would have been so understanding and slimy and nice like snakes are. Snakes don't come roaring at you. They slide in slipperily and find themselves in your drawer, striking at the most vulnerable of moments. And so these men had done. And so what we see then happen in the beginning of chapter 15 is that Paul and Barnabas come back to Antioch after preaching to the Gentiles, and they find Peter there, which is great because he's the other apostle. But they find Peter there, and he, as a Jew, is not segregating with, sorry, not, not, not partaking with, the Gentiles. The Gentile Christians have one table at the Lord's Supper. The Jewish Christians have another table, and, and Peter's with them. Peter, when these men came down from Jerusalem, sided with them, not because he agreed, but because of the pressure, the social pressure that was on, the, the, the fear of man rose up again in Peter, and he sat down with the Jews. Even, it says, when Paul and Barnabas came back, we see that Barnabas himself was convinced and, and sort of bent and, and folded to the pressure and was sitting with the Jews. And it was Paul who publicly called out Peter. We, we read this happening in Galatians chapter 2. It was such a big deal. He couldn't talk about it privately. He couldn't have a, a small conversation. He made a public scene calling the apostle Peter to account, saying that you are not living in accordance with the gospel. The gospel is not just some spiritual truth that applies that will be in the same heaven. It finds its grounding in this life. We can eat together, mingle together, live together. There need be no separation. This was the argument. It was Peter who had seen the vision who God had told what I call clean, don't call unclean. What's he doing? This is the life of Peter. He's flipping and flopping from good and strong to soft and fearing man. Well, this debate rose up and they decided this was not enough to just settle it in the church of Antioch. Instead, they sent uh, uh, messengers, they sent debaters, they sent the theologians down to Jerusalem, really the, the hub and the birthing spot of the whole church. They sent people down there to sort this theological question out. And you can, you can understand the question. because They're not 2,000 years on in the church age. These guys are first-generation Jews who have entered in through Christ of salvation and then had this very confusing question. How can you receive the salvation from the Father through the Son and reject everything else they're saying? You know, I mean, we would have that argument. You can't become a Christian and then ditch all of the, the commandments in the Bible because you're saved by grace, which means I can just sin all I want. That, that's, that's the Jewish question. How can they do that? And it's been taking years. In fact, it's a decade since Peter saw that, sheet, that vision of the sheet coming down and, and him see, seeing Cornelius saved. It's been a decade since then. The question is still rocking and reeling in the church. What is sin? Are the Gentiles not doing the Jewish laws? Does that count as sin? Or, or, or do we categorize this some other way? The Jews had very little sense to make of this. But Paul was set on finding an answer. And so he travels down to Jerusalem with the brothers. We see in verse 6 that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. I'm now going to read for us the, the, the speeches that happen in, uh, uh, throughout this uh, debate. And we will end in verse 21. Hear now the word of the living God. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. 
Simeon has now related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things knows of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. May God bless the reading of his own true, inerrant, authoritative word among us this morning. This three-part speech that comes from the mouth of Peter and then Paul and Barnabas and then James is a cataclysmic shift. What we're going to see after this, after they come to an agreement on what God is doing in the gospel, the rest of the book of Acts is going to be following Paul as he carries the gospel to the Gentiles, free of any Old Testament obligations of law and ceremony. That's what's going to happen. At the back of this, this huge shift has taken place. We're building momentum. The engines are firing, and the fullness of the Great Commission is about to take off. Peter here, through verses 7 to 11, has three main points that I want us to look at. Down in verse 7, last half of verse 7, he says this, that God bore witness, God bore witness to his accepting the Gentiles. He made very public the fact that he had accepted the Gentiles because he saved them and indwelt them by his spirit. So we see there in verse, the end of verse 7, he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's making the point that he bore witness to them, verse 8 says, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. There can't be a distinction between, between us and them because God didn't make the distinction. God has borne witness that he wanted to save the Gentiles. He, in fact, we can just take from Acts 11 and quote, when Peter had, had experienced this, this outpouring of the Spirit on, on Cornelius' household, he then went back to Jerusalem, and everyone was pretty annoyed at what they heard was happening, and he then had to defend what had happened. He says in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, this is again 10 years before this current debate, he said back then, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just on as us, just, on, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if then God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, that is all the the Jews that Peter is relaying this to, they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this had already, in, in some measure, been, been covered 10 years ago. But, but new brothers had been saved from the Pharisee party of the Jews, and, and also maybe that question of, of, yes, Gentiles can be saved, but there has to be some level of distinction. You know, we're okay that, that as God sends messages uh, through visions to certain individuals and says, go to this Gentile house and save them, That makes sense. Well, we're okay with that. But this is different. This is Paul taking the initiative to just go into every God-hating Gentile city and proclaim for free the Jewish gospel. That's different. That is us taking the initiative. That is is a torrent of Gentiles into the kingdom. We thought we were just going to have a little pond of them. This is a different question. So the next point that Peter really drives home is that God made no distinction between us Jews and those Gentiles. That language is very, very significant. It comes up over and again in the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans, both of which address this very question. But when you hear Peter saying in verse 9 that God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, as a Jew, you would be shocked at that. 
you would be absolutely rattled. And if you're one of the Judaizers, the, the people convincing people to get circumcised and follow the law of Moses, you are furious. That's literally the thing that God does. He makes distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. He's literally called the God of Abraham. That's the Jews. He's, he's literally not any of the other gods. He's, he's a very specific God. Everything in the Old Testament was to make distinctions. How can we now say that God makes no distinction? Welcome, Peter is saying, to the goodness of the new covenant. The distinction of the new covenant is that God makes no distinction. I know it's Olympic time. That is, as uh, Olympic, Olympians come home, they're going to be telling the stories of the, of the medals that, that they received. And I want you to imagine somebody who had won gold through much hard work and labor, and somebody who had won silver through just as much hard work and labor, but they didn't get the gold. And as the, the person comes off the plane and the reporters are there and they say, you know, we, we want to speak to the, to the medalists, and the gold medalist is there holding up the medal saying, yes, I, I won. I, I got a medal in Tokyo. And the, and the silver and the bronze medalists sort of come up, put their hands over the gold medal and say, us too, us too, aren't we all so great? And to us, we go, yeah, they're better than us. We're sitting in our homes on the couches eating Doritos. These guys are athletes. But, but if you're the gold medalist, you, you sort of want to make a little distinction there. Yeah, it's cute, isn't it? We are all medalists, in a sense, but mine's a different color. And it's a different color on purpose, and it's a different medal. It's gold. Let's, I'm fine. You were on the podium with me. I remember. It was great. Three medals for Australia, but one gold medal for Australia. There needs to be some level of distinction here, right? And this is, this is the mindset of the Jews. Yes, the Gentiles are here as God-given, grace-saved silver medalists. But us Jews have gone through more doors we went through a surgery. We've gone through the law. We've been born of the right family. We had a specific thing about us that gives us just a little bit of a distinction. Surely God sees that. And here's Peter in verse 9, having the boldness to say, and he made no distinction between us and them. Wow. Because... He cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, now, the reason he's emphasizing faith there as the cleansing of the heart is because he's saying if, if we are all equally saved by faith, that suggests to us that we are all equally condemned by sin. If we have the same solution to our problem, we must have the same problem. And so this language of Jews and Gentiles being equally damned, therefore saved through the same method, without distinction, comes up word for word in Romans chapter 3, written by Paul many years later. He says, Romans 3, verse 22, For there is no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So since there's no distinction in our damnation, sure, some of you are Jews and some of you are Gentiles, but that's like arguing who can hold your breath the longest at the bottom of the ocean, not making much difference functionally. You're Jews and Gentiles equally lost in sin. That's why there's no distinction through how we're saved. It's faith for all, for all are condemned by sin. Paul wraps up verse, uh, sorry, chapter 3 in Romans by saying this in verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is what will become the, the catchphrase of the Reformation, sola fide, justification by faith alone, or in Paul's words, by faith without works of the law. And then he asks the question that we're answering today in Acts 15, verse 29. Or is, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith. 
God justifies the Jews and the Gentiles by the very same method, faith alone. Because before the law, the law made no distinction, all condemned. And so in salvation, God makes no distinction. Faith alone for all. God made no distinction. And then we see his third point coming through 10 and 11. We've seen, and this, this is not what is, what, this is what Peter is fighting today in the Jerusalem council. He said, it's not as if the Gentiles are saved by faith and we are saved by the law as Jews. He's not saying that. He's, he's not saying that the Gentiles are saved by the law. We've covered that. He's also saying they're not saved by grace and us by law. It's all faith. But another distinction he's saying, that the Old Testament believers were not saved through law, but now that Jesus has come, we're saved through grace. That's also not true. That's not the new covenant distinction. He's also going to make the point here that even the Old Testament fathers were saved through faith without the law because the law did nothing but put a yoke upon them that they could not carry. And we today, both Jew and Gentile, are saved through faith alone. So look at verse 10 and 11. You'll see it come through very clearly. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? I love that he goes straight to the heart there. Not just intellectual debate, but how dare you oppose God? Why do you put God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He's saying that from, from all, all our father's age, before Jesus, from the time that Moses gave the law until Jesus came, our fathers, like us, like any Gentile who heard the law, were condemned by the law. No one put on the Ten Commandments and all of God's ceremonial commands and, and waltzed around in perfect upholding of them. The law comes and it kills it weighs down, it condemns, so that we might trust in God's promises of grace. So Paul, sorry, Peter, is saying that, that we today, there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in salvation. There's also no distinction between Old Testament Jew and New Testament Jew and Gentile. All have only ever been saved by faith. And having sat down after that, Kill our speech, of course, verse 12 says, and all the assembly was silent. Maybe angry, some of them, maybe annoyed, but, but submitting to the fact that here, this apostle, just a, just a month ago, on the other side of this debate up in Antioch, now here, preaching powerfully by the power of the Spirit, he makes a case we cannot deny. And we see the second part of this, of this speech happen through Paul and Barnabas. And we see this wrapped up simply in verse 12. It says, And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So here Peter has set up the, the gospel foundation, the word of God makes no distinction. And then Paul and Barnabas take stage and start saying how that has practically worked out. We've been missionaries. We've been going, and, and we have been going to the synagogues and preaching, and many Jews have been saved. Many Jews have opposed us, but many Gentiles have been saved. This is Acts 13 and 14. It was amazing. They, they went all around, and many miracles were done. The Holy Spirit fell. Disciples were made. Churches were planted. It was amazing. And here are these people who had at one time tried to, tried to oppose this, tried to put on the brothers the yoke of the law and circumcision because they're Pharisees. That, that's the, the school they were saved out of when they became Christians. Well, here's Paul, an ex-Pharisee, a Jew, a Jew of Jews, declaring that the Holy Spirit is making no distinction. They're amazed by that. Do not be afraid, Paul is saying, or resistant to our mission. It is exactly what the Messiah, Jesus, has meant for us to do. We remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus said to the apostles, Paul wasn't there at that point, he got his commission a little later, but Jesus had said that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will make you witnesses through Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria 
and then the ends of the earth. And that is what we've seen happen through the book of Acts. They went through Jerusalem. They went through all of Judea. They even went to the half-breed Samaritans and saw them saved. And now Paul is saying, we've been to the doorway of the end of the earth and we will go yet further. This is what Jesus meant for us to do. And then James in verse 13. This is James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. The apostle James, who is the brother of John, has already been killed by Herod back in Acts chapter 12. But this James, the brother of Jesus, who is historically, we can tell, the, really what looked like the senior pastor uh, over the church in Jerusalem, a, a large megachurch going through much suffering and poverty, he was, he was their pastor. And he stands up and makes this point. He says that this, what we're hearing through Simeon, which is Peter, which is Cephas, all the same name, he says what we've been hearing through Simeon, in verse 14 here, He has related how God first visited the Gentiles, that was Cornelius 10 years ago, to take from them a people for his name. Wow, that's Jewish language. He's using Jewish language about non-Jewish people, taking from them a people for his own name. That's Jewish language. He's saying he's doing that even to the Gentiles. But his, his main point is that this is according to the Jewish prophets, not against them. This is not going against the prophets. This is what the prophets have foretold. So look in verse 15. He says, And this is what the words of the prophets agree with, just as it is written. So, so, he, so his point is, as he's trying to build the case, he's, he's helping the Jews sort of come on side. Okay, this is according to the prophets, not against them. We're not tearing pages out of the Old Testament scrolls here. We're keeping them intact and seeing them fulfilled. But not only is this according to the Jewish prophets, not against them, this is in accordance with the building up of God's promises to Israel, not against them. James is going to make the point, like he picks this particular prophecy, which is a really weird one to pick because there's some that were just so much clearer, which Paul uses later in his ministry to say, this is why I'm going to the Gentiles. Look at this very explicit prophecy. But this one he picks because it does two things. It does prophesy that the Gentiles will come in. But it first prophesies that the house of Israel is being built up and so the Gentiles come in. So James is making the point that it's not as if we we hold to this kind of replacement theology where, where all of the Jews are out, the promises of God are null and void for them, and now he's doing something with the Gentiles. That would get the the Jews very offside, and rightly so, because that's not what the prophets say. What he's saying is that the house of David, the promises to David, the blessings of the old covenant promises are being fulfilled, and in there, the Gentiles come in. He's saying that the, the olive root, the olive tree, like Paul uses this imagery in Romans, He says, it's not as if God is coming and uprooting everything he said and throwing it to the side. He's cutting off some branches, but he's engrafting the Gentile branch into the promises that have long been foretold. Don't think this is the destruction of the house of David. This is the building up and the reaching out. And so he reads, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Wow. Don't don't be afraid that the Gentiles are pushing the Jews out, but as the Jews are blessed, so the door is swung open to the Gentiles and the blessing is complementary to one another. And then verse 19, we see see this point. And I want to throw us back to Matthew chapter 20. We have this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 20. He tells the parable, and I'm I'm going to go briefly over it. I'm sure it will come to mind. This, this landowner goes into the, the, the town where all of the laborers come for the day to find work, and he, he offers people a day's worth of wage if they come and work in his field all day. Some agree. He brings them in. They start working early in the morning. Then halfway through the day, he realizes, I need more, I'm, I'm, I need more men. I'm going to go get more laborers. He brings more laborers halfway through the day. 
Then he comes and gets another lot a little bit later in the afternoon, and they come, and they obviously have to sh- have a shorter amount of day to work, uh, and we would think less money. Uh, but then he comes, and at the very last hour, just before the, he blows the whistle for quitting time, he goes and gets more guys, brings them in, and puts them to work for a measly 58 minutes, and then calls it. And then as he's dishing out the day's labors, uh, the, the laborers, the wages, he gives the same amount to all people. And the people who had been there from early on in the day were very annoyed because they had gone through all of this hard labor and toil in the heat of the day. And then we're getting the paid, we're getting the payment the exact same as the guys who came in and had to suffer nothing. That's unfair. We don't like that. And the landowner said, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I not allowed to do and give out the way that I want to give out? He says, or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my giving to some people more freely or or differently than I give to others? Here's how this is showing us the picture. The Jews were meant to be those who had labored all day through the law and the, and the ceremonies and all of this difficulty. And, and at the final hour of the day, the Gentiles come in, have to go through none of the preparatory work, get all the same payment in salvation. They were supposed to get that and say, I am so amazed by the generosity of our, of our owner. I'm so amazed by the grace of God. And I'm so glad that you didn't have to go through what we went through. I'm so glad for you. I, I love our, 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 our boss's generosity. I love that you don't have to labor. But instead, the older brother of the prodigal, Cain to Abel, the Jews to the Gentiles, the older always begrudged the generosity given to the younger. They were supposed to be so glad, but instead they said, not fair, send them back tomorrow, make them labor as long as we do, then they can have what we have. But Jesus through James, is saying, they get the very same salvation. Let us be those who praise God for that and not begrudge his generosity. He does, however, in verse 20 and 21, make a couple of distinctions. He does say that, okay, we've established that that the, the Gentile and the Jews, the sinners in Jesus are justified by faith alone. Faith alone, that's all you must bring. And friends, that's our, that's our news today, that all we must bring in order to be saved is our sin. And in bringing your sin to Jesus, who died for sinners, by resting and believing on all that he has done, you are made right before the law of God. You are received as one cleansed in your inner man, inner woman, inner person by faith. However, the church was going to have to exist in some kind of unity the Gentiles and the Jews, alongside each other. And while he's made, therefore, the case, just as God did through Jesus in Mark chapter 7, when he said all these food things that really don't make you unclean, and Mark puts in the brackets, and thus saying this, he made all foods clean, right? So enjoy your bacon and pork sausage rolls on on Sunday mornings. So there's no more of those ceremonial distinguishing laws that apply. However, James is saying, There needs to be the principle of love, not law. There needs to be the understanding that, as he says in verse 21, Moses and his words have been preached throughout all the cities and the synagogues. Wherever we go on mission and wherever the church is established, there will be Jews and brother Gentiles. We have to write to them, James says. We have to write to them and tell them, be careful with the conscience of your Jewish brothers. Because if you're coming into the same building, eating at the same table, I know that God is not separating. I know that God is not rejecting you just because you ate some snake or you you had some rat jerky. I know. But the Jews have this in their blood. And in this this period of history where where the Jews are still in their synagogues, they still have their scrolls, and and, and God be praised for all of that. In this period of history, while the church is just so Jewish, while, the, while this infant of the church is still growing up to full maturity, watch, Gentile brothers, please do not partake of 
blood because the Gentiles would drink or, or, or utilize blood in, in, in ways that were, were against the Jewish conscience and law from the Old Testament. It says, don't eat meat that has been strangled, which is really the same principle. The blood has not been let out of the body. The blood is still in the meat and therefore unclean to Jews, right? Don't serve that up for the post-church feast. Your Jews will have to go hungry and be highly offended. He says also, uh, don't eat meat that has been offered to idols. We, we know how this worked, that the, the pagans would take a carcass, give it to the, the high priest of the pagan temple. He would, he would divvy it all up and eat some of it, offer it up to the God, and then the leftovers he would sell out in the butcher in the back of the shop. And so you could go along and you'd buy meat and eat it at home that has been sacrificed to certain idols. And the Jews, we see this in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, the Jews could not eat that meat. That was unclean demon meat. And Paul, Peter, James, Jesus is saying, there's really nothing wrong with that. But if your conscience cannot let you partake, then Gentiles, don't bring that meat to church. Don't invite your Jewish mate over and serve an up a, 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 a pork hock. It's not going to work out. And of course also he says, Abstain from sexual immorality. This is, this is not a ceremonial thing. Like, you know, that was just a Jewish thing. If you've got the conscience to be sexually immoral, it doesn't matter. No. He's saying, though, he's adding this to those, those unbinding recommendations, right? Avoid the things that will offend the Jews. But he's also saying something that they should know, they must know. But as we read the New Testament, we realize it doesn't come naturally to Gentiles. Sexual morality, sexual purity through the lifeblood of the Roman world in that pagan time was sexual immorality. So that if you became a Christian and you were a Roman citizen, you might have had a wife who raised your kids, a concubine you went on dates with, a prostitute you visited every now and then, and a girlfriend who you bought flowers for. There was nothing frowned upon by that. And so if you became a Christian and you ended your relationships with two of your girlfriends and your concubine. You'd, you'd be amazingly upright. They'd be, wow, he's just got one prostitute. Wow. And, and, and they're making this point that go further than you think you need to go, Jews. And, and we'll write about this in the rest of the New Testament. We'll, we'll remind you, but be so sensitive. What you are desensitized to in terms of sexual immorality, the Jews are very aware of. So these requirements that he hands down are not binding Old Testament law, but are helpful measures for unity in a church that is made up of both Jew and Gentile. We've been asking as we come to close now, we've been asking each week four questions about the speeches, the sermons that we see in the book of Acts. We've been saying, how does this develop the narrative of salvation through the Bible? We've been saying, how does this speech or sermon show us distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We've been saying, how does it preach Jesus Christ? And we've been saying, what are some applications for us today? And so, by way of closing, let us answer those four questions. First of all, how does this speech develop the narrative of salvation? Well, what we have here is, is the, the human level, the cause of the New Testament. Galatians was written... To, to, to tell the, the, the truth of what is debated about today. Romans is going to be written. Uh, 1 Corinthians is going to be written. Many of them all coming on the back of questions that Gentiles have, needs that Gentiles have as they're coming into this salvation in Jesus. The re because today's debate happens and is, and is settled in Acts chapter 15, therefore we have a church, therefore we have a New Testament. What we're seeing is that salvation has been promised, salvation has been achieved, salvation has spread, but there's always a backlash. So today's next chapter in redemptive history is the, the backlash of the older brother, the, the Pharisaic Judaizing Jews, and God's response, the, the, the reapplication of grace and this, this opening of Pandora's box. A hundred questions that Gentiles are now going to have about how to be God followers in a pagan world. But we can also ask, how does this transition us, show us the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The covenant of works, the covenant of Moses was, uh, and of Abraham were made through those two men, Abraham and Moses, to all of Israel. And yet the covenant 
The new covenant was made with man through Jesus Christ. We saw those emphasized today. Moses and Abraham being applied to the people, but Jesus came to them without mediatory work, came to them directly. We see that circumcision and law made distinction. That was one of the reasons God gave them, was to distinguish between Jew and Gentile. But Christ makes no distinction in the new covenant. We see that the law was not able to clean you up to give you the Holy Spirit. But in Jesus and his covenant, he makes you clean by faith to receive the promised Holy Spirit. We see that the law did not justify, as we read today, it only condemns, it is only a heavy yoke that slows you down to salvation, but Christ does justify, making you acceptable before the law of God. We see that the law condemns, but Christ purifies in verse 9. We see that the law demands perfect obedience, but Christ requires only faith. It's so the distinction between old law covenant and new grace covenant. The ceremonial and civil laws of the old covenant, those things about the nation of Israel, about the temple worship, the clothing, the animal food laws, these were all external signs of an internal faith, but they were truly binding. They weren't excused whether you did or didn't have faith. It's not like you could be a Jew and say, it's all right, I'm eating pig, because not eating pig is a sign, and it's just external. I have real faith in the Messiah to come, and therefore the laws don't apply to me. You couldn't do that. If you had the true faith, God wanted you to walk in those rules. But you also couldn't excuse it the other way and say, yeah, I'm a Jew, but I don't actually believe all this stuff, so I'm going to go ahead and eat pig anyway, and the death penalty won't apply to me. Also not true. If you're a Jew, believing or unbelieving, you must have walked in those commandments given through Moses. They were binding. But now, in the new covenant, after Jesus, those things are not binding to <coughs> Jew or Gentile. Entry into the new covenant is by faith alone. It is not external laws and ceremony that we now have, but true heart-growing holiness that loves the law of God and seeks to obey him, that is our external sign of true obedience. And it is binding. Every Christian must seek to obey the rules given to us in the Ten Commandments and in the New Testament. But your obedience to those rules, though binding, though real commands, are not your basis of relationship to God. Those commands apply to you. They are not your covenant for salvation, however. Remember that. This is the distinction that the covenant of grace so amazingly brings. And now the, the distinction between old covenant and new covenant is that, as we've been relaying today, God makes no distinction in the new covenant. Ephesians verse 2 and 11 reads like this. Therefore, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles of the church. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the nation of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. God has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. And says in chapter 3, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So that the new covenant, we don't have a, a saved Jewish church and a saved Gentile church. We have one body. Distinctions through those uh, uh, commandments and ceremonies has been broken down in the cross and we are one. That's the distinction between the old and the new covenant. And how does this speeches that, that came from Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James, how does it preach to us Jesus Christ? It shows us that he is the lone saviour, the only one. There wasn't a Gentile saviour sent later. There is one saviour. There is one head of a new and better covenant. There is one better sacrifice because it was God eternal in flesh. 
They're preaching that there is one better mediator because it is God himself who is mediating God to us, not a sinful man. We're shown that the priest that we have is better. We have a Jesus as our priest, not Moses or one of Aaron's descendants. Our priest doesn't have sins of his own to make atonement for. We're seeing that Jesus, as bringing both Gentile and Jew together, he's a better advocate on our behalf than all of the Old Testament praying priests could ever be because he lives forever to make intercession for those who come to God near him, through him. Jesus is the better covenant bringer. He gives the better promises, and that is come today and be saved. The covenant of Jesus, the command of Jesus is not obey, 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 but to us today, however unsaved you are, unchurched you are, evil you are, whatever sin you believe to be in your heart and in your past, Jesus says with his omnipotence and his omniscience that he knows everything you did. He remembers the things you forget. He sees that internet browser history, the the deep, deep caverns of your heart, your motivations. He knows. He sees it. And while we assume he would threaten us in judgment, he says, come. I've died for it all. You bring nothing to the table. Just come. Believe. Be saved today. Don't spend another day in your sin. Don't risk another night going to sleep where you might not wake up. Don't risk another highway journey. Don't risk another exposure to some sickness. Don't do it. Life is on offer. Do not play with your eternity. It hangs in the balance. Jesus says, come. It is so free. It is so finished. It is so final. Come one and all to Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's our application for today. That we need to be thinking along the lines that Peter and James and Paul have outlaid here. That there is no distinction between color or race or background. We need to be free and unabashed in our preaching and proclaiming the gospel to anyone. Do you know what started the problem? Mission. People dared to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Do you know what solved this? Gospel mission. Explaining what God is doing. Do you know what this led to? Greater gospel mission. I don't want us to be people who sit here and amen the truths coming out of this passage and feeling in ourselves the the great relief from freedom of sin if that doesn't drive us to take that to others. Your workmates, your family members, your neighbors, the people out on the street in our lost city. If we love this, then let us bring others in. It will never, ever take from our salvation. It'll never lessen the grace that we enjoy to see others come in. It is only ever a life-giving blessing. Let us see the church of God grow as the gospel is proclaimed. And lastly, maybe as one final application, we realize, don't we, that there are dogs. Paul warns the Philippians of these men who came trying to get them circumcised. And he says, watch out for the dogs. They're coming for you. Don't be Christians who think that that there will be completely unlike the book of Acts. There will be great gospel growth and people saved and families restored and the gospel will go forth from us and we can ignore every command in the New Testament to be watchful, stay alert and watch out for heretics. No, they won't grow up from among us. That just happened in Paul's church. He was not a very good Christian. That just happened in the New Testament church. They had apostles and they were very uh, unprofessional. But us, our day, we don't need to watch out for wolves. Friends, be on the constant lookout. Not hunting down your brothers and sisters, but always careful with the words that are being said. What is being taught? Pay close attention to what is being preached here and in other places. Be watchful. Stand firm. Be alert. For there are ravenous wolves who seek to spy out the freedom we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great new covenant that you have brought to bear through the testimony of your Lord, your Son, your King, your given Messiah, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that it is better than anyone 
throughout all of the ages who were reading the promises. It was better than they could even have guessed and thought. Well, even as it was being preached and it was revealed and explained once, and not, not a decade later it had been perverted by some, the goodness of it misunderstood. How Truly, Lord, how, how can it be this good that you tell us to lay down all of our sinful doings, all of our attempts to be made righteous, for you do it all. We thank you, God. I pray for those of us who are Christians, who are laboring, who are killing sin, who are maturing, who are making advances in the gospel uh, uh, growth in our own life and in the great commission that you've given to us. I pray, Lord, that you would renew, strengthen, and equip them today. Lord, I also pray for those Christians who are saved, who know Jesus, but have let their hearts slip, who have, who have not been reading the word of God, who have been allowing sin to grow up in their heart and making excuses for it, who have, who have been slack in the preaching to others, who have simply a cold and calloused heart towards you this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would work in them a revitalization, a confession and a conviction of sin, a repentance from their sin, and a coming again to remember the goodness of your salvation, that though they have dirtied their feet, yet you will wash them again. Lord, and you will use them in your mission. Father God, I pray lastly for those who are among us and not saved. You know the heart, you said through Peter this morning. You know the heart, and yet you offer salvation. I pray that none would waste another day, no one would risk another week, no one would toy, no one would insult you again by rejection. But Lord, please give salvation by your spirit through your word to every lost heart today. For Lord, we beg that your salvation will go deep and wide here and spread from us to the nations. We pray, Lord, for salvation in this house. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.